Hi everybody. Welcome back to Childhood History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan and this installment of CHC is the second of two on violence and generational relations. This time I have a conversation with Ben Parsons, lecturer in English at the University of Leicester in the UK. Ben is a literary critic. He has produced a wide range of analyses of medieval and renaissance drama, folklore, and exegesis, and other forms of literature. His work has appeared in collections and journals, including Medium Avum, The Chaucer Review, Modern Philology, The Journal of American Folklore, and European Medieval Drama, to name a few. Our conversation has been divided into two parts. We begin with Ben's academic background and his current project, Discipline, and the Late Medieval Classroom. Here we discuss the varied justifications and understandings of the relationship between the body, physical violence, and learning that circulated in late medieval and early modern texts. In part two, I asked Ben about the 1669 children's position, an anonymous request for the English Parliament to regulate and limit corporal punishment in schools. I was interested in hearing what Ben thought about and noticed in this document. What were the points of continuity and change that he could see based on his understanding of earlier discourses on corporal punishment? We recorded this conversation in May 2015, and I hope you find it as helpful as I did Take care. Well, Ben, thanks. Thanks for joining Childhood History and Critique. Yeah, you're quite welcome. And you're you're uh, you're coming to us from Leicester. Uh, That's correct. In the UK. Yep. Well, let's let's just get right into it. I, my first question is: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your intellectual uh, interests, and your academic background? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, um, well, I'm a, a literary specialist. Predominantly, that's sort of what I teach and what I publish, and, uh, and that is my um, educational background too. Um, I got my PhD in 2007 from the University of Sheffield, and I've been working at the University of Leicester in various uh, forms and capacities from about 2008, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was made teaching fellow, and I've gradually sort of managed to climb up to the level of lecturer uh, as of 2003. Thirteen. I don't know why I'm so sketching the details, <laughs> but uh, but predominantly, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of based in in English uh, literature um, in the medieval and sort of early modern period, kind of where my expertise and where the kind of interest was sort of sparked um, in terms of the kind of literary portrayals of, of the classroom, and trying to make sense of those kind of salient, often quite stereotypical features of, of medieval education you tend to find in those portrayals. And you have a you have a project that you're engaged in right now. Um, That's right. Yeah. Violence in the medieval classroom. Can you? That's yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Disposed disposed of violence <laughs> in the title. Um, I've been thinking of it um, more recently, which is rather less sort of I guess sexy and forceful, but discipline rather than violence in the medieval classroom. So I, I sort of I've come to the realization that. Um, Violence is kind of specifically a category of factors which they're often trying to avoid. Uh, in terms of the sort of general um, 
thrust of the project. I mean, basically, it's, it's designed to resolve that question of exactly what role physical coercion and corporal punishment play in education mm-hmm. uh, in the medieval period specifically. Um, what I was really trying not to do was sort of impose kind of retrospective um, value judgments onto that period. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to kind of make sense of the activities and the practices of, um, of discipline and the effects that are attached to them, the rationales that underpin them in terms of the logic of the period itself, exactly how physical force is kind of mapped in terms of the contribution it played to the acquisition of knowledge or the creation of a kind of literate subject, um, how exactly uh, blows on the pupil's body were meant to kind of affect the internal architecture of the, of the child's mind. I mean, how exactly did medieval pedagogues kind of square that particular problem? What sort of solutions and explanations and rationalizations they offer for that? One of the arguments that you mm-hmm. that you you make in in the work that you've produced thus far is that yeah that that in this relationship between blows upon the mo- body and learning mm-hmm. part part of your argument is as I understand it is that that it's mm-hmm. varied that there's not that it's, it's not a monolith that it's unsettled. One of the observations you make is that that the elaborate justifications themselves the fact that they are quite elaborate in the late medieval period actually and and mm-hmm. and also uh, back to into the the high middle ages that 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 itself suggests there's a need for justification that it yeah. can't be taken for granted no i think i think that's 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 quite accurate i mean i sort of see it as a kind of uh, a sort of a dual issue i suppose it's kind of two sides to this the sort of the need to rationalise punishment, but also on the same, on, on the other hand, the fact that so many different and very distinct justifications are put up, there isn't a kind of you know commonsensical idea of what um, punishment happens to do. Each pedagogue seems to come at this um, this issue from their own, often quite unique and idiosyncratic standpoint. So there's, there's, there is no kind of overarching consensus. Even though there is that kind of consensus on the necessity of beating, there's a weird sort of parallel lack of consensus on, on why, in terms of its kind of effectiveness or its efficacy, why it's, it's, why it is used, kind of what it, what it actually does do this of such great benefit to learners. I mean, on all these different kind of ideas are cooked up instead. I mean, that it's odd. I mean, as you say, there's kind of this, this desire to justify it, a desire to kind of make it um, rationalised. So there's a clear sense that it is useful, that it is necessary, that punishment and coercion are kind of indispensable facets of education. But on the other hand, the fact that there are so many and so varied um, solutions to this question brought up, it's just there is a disconnect. And in your forthcoming article in Modern Philology, part of your overarching point is that in the late medieval period, what perhaps used to be called the Renaissance, a term that's kind of gone away. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but so, I think, yeah. Yeah, but in the in this late medieval slash early modern period, there's there is in fact a a, a variation in explanation. But one of the things mm-hmm. that Dolvin observes is, and I I, I just want your uh, you to speak to this, is that there's 
seems to be little distinction between order and instruction in the pedagogical discourse. And this mm-hmm. is drawn out of his uh, 2007 book, Scenes of Instruction yeah. in, um, in Renaissance Romance. And the, the, again, the, there's less of a, dis- a, a distinction than we might expect from a modern perspective between order and instruction. And I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's quite a, a complex issue. I mean, I think broadly... That's a sort of accurate summation, but I would add a, a few sort of points of nuance. I mean, certainly towards the early 16th century and, and the late 15th century, you find in sort of satire against um, uh, education and, and school teachers in particular as a kind of estate, this this kind of increasing sense that, um, and again, the kind of portrayal of, of punishment is kind of a big, a big part of this. Um, the, the, I mean, I'm thinking of something like um, Erasmus's uh, Praise of Folly, for instance, the depiction of the school which is in there, which leads on to uh, Montaigne's work about instruction from later on in the period, um, where the, the school teacher's kind of caricatured as a sort of bully. Um, I think there's a um, a painting by Bruegel as well, The Ass Goes to School, which again kind of shows that kind of same idea, that they are depicted, I think, if I remember correctly, Erasmus describes the schoolroom as a, a pistrina or a kind of flour mill, which is just that kind of grime students um, in, in this kind of lovely kind of industrial sort of uh, imagery. Um, and he says you hear nothing in there but the, the cracking of rods and the, uh, the flapping of whips and the screams of the children. You know, so language is kind of reasonable language is kind of blotted out by the kind of screams of the, the sort of punished according to Erasmus and I guess that the way those attacks on this kind of established education system are sort of, and the I mean there's a kind of continuity there of course I mean you can see how this kind of satiric figure of the school teacher kind of persists for sort of centuries afterwards I mean you know you don't have to think of kind of Dickens kind of waxwood squeers and um and well yeah, I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> well, no, it's a theme. It's a theme that runs all the way into the present. I think. It sure does. Yeah. Draw a line from Erasmus all the way to cartoons. I can remember a famous one. I, I, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal after a 1979 yeah. case in the United States affirmed uh, rights of, of corporal punishment. Uh, basically, corporal punishment not a violation of uh, cruel and unusual mm-hmm. usual punishment clause in the U.S. Constitution. Course, yeah. And what it showed was. A, a set of various implements for striking children, and it, it basically said instructional materials. You know, mm. and and, and no, but, see, actually, yeah. but the point was is that for the reader, what you're invoking is that whatever those birches and and yeah. paddles are, they aren't instructional materials. Kind of identifying coercion of the body. With everything that is sort of um, to be rejected from the educational system, the fact that that emerges in the kind of late 15th, early 16th century shows that perhaps there is a kind of gradual movement away from um, identifying learning and instruction, kind of command and um, acquisition of knowledge as being sort of almost synonymous. 
Exactly. I mean, part of what the the metaphor of the of children as the wheat being grinded mm. at least calls out, they shouldn't be viewed as that. That they're not just inhuman, unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. That there should be a, also... a chasm between subjectivity and mere mm. objects. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that does seem to be exactly the point. I think also, though, there is there is a sense in the medieval period itself. I mean, you know, that's the kind of humanist departure. Sort of uh-huh. slow drift away from the medieval precedent. The Middle Ages is a lot more uh, um, materialist, quite often, in the way that it sees um, both the effects of punishment. I mean, in the article you mentioned, I, I talk about um, Bartholomew of England, for instance, who sort of talks about um, punishment playing a necessary role when the child's body is at its its kind of softest. Apparently, it kind of serves yeah. in some way to toughen them up. Um, and that's by no means a kind of isolated example of that line of thinking. But also, there's um, a number of, um, of texts actually look to the child's body as a kind of index of how much punishment is appropriate. There's a, a series of texts um, written in the wake of this, this treatise in the... Well, I don't know if you've heard of this thing. It's called uh, De Disciplina Scholarium. Um, it's one. It's in itself a sort of era-straddling text in that it's written in the 1230s in Paris, um, although it claims to have been written by Boethius. And owing to that claim sort of sticking, um, it, it remains in print sort of well into the middle of the um, 16th century. So it's still being read by early modern pedagogues as well as medieval ones. He um, he creates this kind of series of archetypes of of students. Um, for whom kind of different levels and different forms of discipline are, are most appropriate. And in order to kind of codify that even further, he looks to the four humours. So it creates these kind of um, four little kind of character sketches of different types of students, like the sanguine, the choleric, the melancholic. Well, on one hand, isolating from the rest of the group in case his sort of um, the amount of choler within him bursts out in the form of anger. And he needs most kind of close supervision and most kind of um, sustained punishment. The phlegmatic, on the other hand, needs least punishment. Should be ruled with a um, with a, a sort of a lighter touch, I suppose. Uh, the sanguine is pro because he's filled with blood and is therefore quite erratic um, and has difficulty concentrating. He needs to be kind of moderately supervised whenever he kind of apparently his eyes will start twisting towards the walls or so that's the point at which the teacher should step in and, and deliver punishment. So you have a kind of um, a very kind of materialist view of punishment in what makes it necessary as well as kind of the effects that it carries out. And what it seems to be doing is really providing the master with a series of cues so they can observe their students' behaviour um, and even the way they look as well. I mean, obviously, as you're aware, um, your predominant humour, your disposition, your complexion will cause you to look a certain way as well as act a certain way. Uh-huh. Um, conditions the body in, in terms of appearance as well as behaviour. So the master has to kind of consult this as a, and use a series of symptoms and kind of decode what uh-huh. sort of discipline, what sort of punishments appropriate to the students. So it's more like a kind of taxonomy, a kind of little... A a- absolutely. Sketch. Like a parallelism or a, um, almost like a, mm. a, a metaphor, a metaphorical or analogical type of reasoning. <laughs> Certainly analogical, uh, analogical yes. Yeah, so that. That, that corresponding this connects with this. And 
Mm. It, 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 it seems to me that that's a way to con- connect um, mm-hmm. learning with the body, yeah. uh, with order. But that fits with a, an older definition of, of reason mm-hmm. as an order. Yeah, a, a, of as an, an order of the universe rather than be a mechanism internal to a process of thinking yeah. that is yeah. insulated from the world at large. Mm. Right? Yes, the kind of harmonics of different elements, I suppose. Yeah, well, if reason, if reason is a mechanical operation mm. within the subject yeah. and with, with subjects who are speaking to each other, then mm-hmm. it is not necessarily analogical to the order of the universe at all. No. It can be disconnected. But, yeah, and, I, I, yeah. And, and I guess the reason that I think that's important is because you could have a justification for corporal punishment or pain mm-hmm. that would be connected mm-hmm. to an entirely interior definition of thinking, and that'd be a pedagogy yeah. of punishment. And you mm-hmm. could have another one where there'd mm. be very little space for an independent subject. Mm. And then there'd be no distinction between instruction and power. Yeah. They'd be all the same. So, yeah, it's not at all surprising that, that you do find this kind of form of justification being developed then in, in the medieval period. You've been listening to part one of a conversation with Ben Parsons on childhood, history, and critique. Part 2 is available on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth.